Our scripture reading comes from Hebrews 11, um, verses 8 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful. Oh, yes, because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people who were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things they promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he was prepared for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. This study on faith that we are working through over the summer months here out of Hebrews has been fascinating to me because it's beginning to clarify and rectify the misinformation that we've had about the Old Testament. And that is that the Old Testament is about a harsh and angry God. It's all about keeping the law to be accepted by God, and the only way you can please God is by following His rules. You know, the phrase the Old Testament is about the law and the New Testament is about grace has been repeated so many times in church circles that the church has become, has become to believe the lie. But we found that the reality is that the Old Testament never did teach salvation by works. It's always taught salvation by faith. Faith has always been the only way to please God. Faith has been the only way to be reconciled to God. Faith is the only way to enter into a right relationship with Him. And as Hebrews put it, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And to make that point, the writer of Hebrews starts in the beginning of the Old Testament and works his way through the stories of the heroes of the faith, coming from the history of Judaism, particularly the Old Testament. We've looked at Abel and the life of faith. We looked at Enoch and the walk of faith. And last week we looked at Noah and the work of faith. And in each case, we've seen that their relationship with God, their salvation, was a result not of works, but of faith. They believed the word of God and therefore obeyed 
the word of God. Trusting in God, having faith in him to fulfill what he had promised on their behalf. Now the next Old Testament character that Hebrews mentioned is Abraham. And I don't know if you realize how pivotal of a character he is to the whole plan of salvation that God introduced. The next, uh, excuse me, Abraham lived from about 2165 BC to about 1990 BC. So we're about 2,000 years now past creation. And in Abraham's day, a new era of human history begins. Before this, God has kind of maintained a sort of general relationship with the whole human race coming out of the flood, as, as he told Noah and the family, repopulate that earth. And so it was kind of a general uh, relationship there until a very significant event occurred, and that was the Tower of Babel. When men built the Tower of Babel, which was really a manifestation of human pride and of idolatry, the general relationship that they had had with God was shattered permanently. And mankind was scattered all over the face of the earth, and their languages were confused, and they were all given different languages, um, and they couldn't talk to or communicate with one another. That was a price of revolting against God. And God abandoned them, and this was the first illustration of Romans chapter 1, where it says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Their choice, not His. And again in verse 28 there in Romans 1, God gave them over to the depravity of their minds. Their choice, not His. So now we have a world of people who have no connection with God. They have no languages in which they uh, have received any revelation from God. There are no written revelations. There's no traditional revelations that have been passed down. People um, have, have become alienated and isolated from God. Romans one twenty one again, For although they knew God... They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. God abandoned them, gave them over to their immorality, their homosexuality, their depraved minds, as Romans continues to talk about. Folks, Romans chapter 1 is happening all over again, right here in our own country, and God is giving them over to the depravity of their mind. Their choice, not his. But in God's mercy, he had a plan. He's going to reveal himself, but this time he's going to reveal himself in a very specific way rather than a general way, through one man and the people who come from the seed of that one man. And of course, that one man was Abraham. Now, Abraham becomes the father of the people of Israel, and Israel becomes a nation through which divine revelation comes. And they will hear his word, and they will write his word, and they will proclaim his word to the nations of the world. Now Abraham, um, excuse me, they're, they're going to be the means by which God is going to proclaim his gospel. Usually when we think of the term gospel, we think of the New Testament, the good news. But there, there is a gospel, there's a good news in the Old Testament. And that is that the good news is that salvation is available. Though they abandoned God and they went their own ways, God provided a means for salvation, um, a means for sinners 
to be reconciled to God through faith. So Abraham becomes a central figure in salvation history, and so becomes a model or an example of faith, an exemplary faith for us. Now Abraham is a central contact point between God and the revelation of his redemptive plan. His life becomes a pattern for all who come to God in faith. So Abraham becomes that central figure, and he's, um, his, his life is that pattern. And in Romans chapter 4, which Ben read some of this morning, the Apostle Paul, as he was proclaiming justification by faith, goes back to Abraham and writes in chapter 4 of the first three verses, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. See, the boasting goes to men, right? There's nothing to boast about before God. What does Scripture say? And then Paul goes back to Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God, and it, what is it? The belief or the faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So the good news of salvation by faith all started way back there with Abraham. And then he says at the end of the chapter, listen, in the end of chapter 3, Galatians, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. If you belong to Christ, then you are whose seed? You are Abraham's seed, because that's where it all started, and heirs according to the promise, the promise made to Abraham. So throughout his life, he believed God. That's what set him apart. He lived by faith, he accepted the word of God, and acted on it, and therefore, he is a model for us. And I believe that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to show in these verses, verses 8 through 19, that the elements of the life of Abraham that he lived, we are to see that as a pattern for us as well. So what characterized Abraham as a man of faith? There are five things that, that we see there in Hebrews chapter 11 that points out or that shows us the completeness of Abraham's faith. First of all, there's a pilgrimage of faith. Verse 8 starts by saying, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. The pilgrimage is found there in the phrase, By faith, Abraham, when called, obeyed and went. There's something interesting here in the grammar of the Greek that is used here. When he was called is what they call a present participle. Now, I'm not a great English grammar person. (laughs) Uh, It refers to the response going on at the same time that he was receiving the call. His obedience, then, is immediate, so that in the very process of clarifying the call from God, uh, the man is already in motion. It could have been translated, Abraham, while being called, was obeying. That's how how quickly that process was going, how quickly was his uh, his obedience. It indicates how immediately he responded. 
And it's by faith, and it's this faith because he went out not knowing where he was going. He said, okay. And that was his response. He was only told that he would be receiving an inheritance. He didn't know where it was. He didn't know what it was. He had no clue. That's pretty serious faith. Leaving everything familiar, everything he knows, his first and only inclination was obedience. It wasn't like there was a travel agency with brochures about Canaan that he could go and check out Canaan and, and go and see if that was going to be convenient for him or his, his wife and his children as he wanted to raise family. Uh, it was obedience. It was an obedient pilgrimage of faith which started with separation. Again, a New Testament concept coming out of the Old Testament. Now let me tell you something about Abraham that might be rather surprising to you if you haven't been looking into Abraham recently. Abraham was a pagan. That sounds harsh, but Abraham was a pagan. And the reason I say that is because he was living and working amongst a part of all the people in that area. And he was part of the scattering of the people um, who were all thrown at the Tower of Babel, who were all scattered and thrown, thrown away because of their, what, idolatry at the Tower of Babel. He's not a secret believer in the true God. There's no evidence of that in Scripture at all. He is just a pagan like a lot of other pagans that were there. And Scripture doesn't indicate that he was something special that caught God's eye to commend him. Listen to what we read in Joshua chapter 24. Verses 2 and 3, Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. It's paganism. But I took your father, this is God speaking, but I took your father Abraham from the land. Abraham belonged to a pagan family in a pagan culture who worshipped other gods. He lived in a pagan city called Ur of Chaldea, which is not too far from the present-day Basra in Iraq. For in our, so we get an idea in our, own, in our own minds. He lived until he was 70 years old in that area. He was not brought up to worship the great I Am, but God appeared to him A divine appointment. That's how God works. Let's do what the Apostle Stephen says in Acts chapter chapter 7, excuse me, verse 2 and 3. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. That's amazing grace as he appears to Abraham in the midst of the paganism. There's no other explanation for God's choosing Abraham other than sovereign intention, sovereign purpose. The God of glory condescended to come to a pagan in the midst of hundreds of thousands of pagans living in a pagan culture, practicing pagan idolatry, and singles out Abraham and says, come out from there. Nothing is said about his morality because that is irrelevant. It was God's choice, and Abraham responded. Do you remember what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17? 
He's actually quoting from Isaiah 52 and and Ezekiel chapter 20. He says, Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. Old Testament concept brought into the New Testament as well. Come out from them. Uh, In John chapter 15, verse 19, Jesus says, If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you what? Out of the world. Be separate, and I'll receive you. Abraham left the land of his birth. He left behind his home, uh, probably some kind of pretty decent estate. He was a wealthy man. He severed his family ties. He left loved ones behind. He abandoned comfortable things. He abandoned familiar things to embrace what? Total uncertainty. But that's the thing. If we are serious about our faith, what does that mean? If we truly seek and love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The life of faith becomes willing because the life of faith is made willing by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus must become our all in all. And everything else in life must become wood, hay, and stubble. This is where every Christian's pilgrimage begins, when you separate from the world, when you separate from everything that is familiar and visible. Canaan was a promised land for Abraham. We do have a promised land, don't we? A land to which God has called us, and it's not here on earth. The pilgrimage begins by being called out. John basically says the same thing in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. And at the end of Galatians, Paul talks about being crucified to the world and the world to him. When, we, when he came to Christ, he died to his interest in the worldly things. The world no longer had any grip on him. In James chapter 4, verse 4, it tells us that friendship with the world means enmity with God. And again, in 1 Peter chapter 1, as obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance in the worldly system, but just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all you do. That's the beginning of the pilgrimage of faith of which Abraham is a model. By faith, Abraham obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. That's what Paul in Romans 1.5 calls the obedience that comes from faith. As God is speaking to us, we should be on the move to accomplish what he is asking. God expects us to have that obedience that comes from faith. And The question that we need to ask ourselves, do I really trust God? Secondly, we see the patience of faith in verses 9 and 10. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He and his families are strangers in this new land. They don't own any property. They're living in tents. He's in the land of promise, but he's a stranger. He never really takes possession of that land, 
of anything. He's like, it's like living in a foreign land. He's a tent dweller along with Isaac and Jacob who followed him there as well. In our NIV translation, it says, By faith he made his home. The Greek word for home that's used there is paroikeo. Oikeo means to live in a house. Para means alongside. Isn't that interesting? He's a foreigner living alongside of the people's homes that are in that land. The land is promised to him, but it's never really possessed. He and his descendants were there for 400 years until they were all taken and hauled off to Egypt. So he's separated from his old life. He's in a land that he really doesn't yet possess. He's a stranger in the world, living in a tent. He's a nomad. Got another New Testament concept going on there as well. It describes our lives as believers, doesn't it? Jesus, when he prays for his disciples uh, in uh, John 17, says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world. We are living alongside. Someday this, this world will be ours when Jesus returns and establishes his millennial kingdom. When the earth will be renewed and the glory of God will fill the earth and Christ will reign and will inherit the earth. But right now we're just tent dwellers here. We're pilgrims living alongside the people in the world. Reminds me of that old chorus that said, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. So here's Abraham. God's promise never seen by him in his life. He never owned land, wandered through Canaan as a tent dweller, and yet never abandoned his faith in view of a future promise. But this is the long-suffering. This is the patience of faith. And at times, I'm sure it was a challenge, yes, even for Abraham. And it's a challenge for us as well. His patience in faith is a model for us to remain faithful and keep our faith strong and joyful and, and full of anticipation and expectation in a long period between the moment of our salvation. Sometimes we get really excited when we're first saved, and then we, you know, life starts setting in, and it's not quite that bubbly excitement that we may have experienced initially. But faith remains constant. We need to make sure that our faith remains constant. The faith of Abraham didn't fail. The faith of Isaac didn't fail. The faith of Jacob didn't fail. That's the patience of faith. That's a faith that endures, and that's the kind of faith that he exhibited. Enduring faith is the only real saving faith. Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica, says, Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. It takes strong faith to endure those persecution and trials. That was Noah's faith. In James chapter 1, we read in verse 2, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Perseverance. Noah's faith was that which persevered, a faith that was patient. And what's the motivation of this? We go back to verse 10 there in Hebrews 11. For he was looking forward. He was looking forward to the city with foundation, who, foundations whose architect and builder is God. This is fascinating. He was looking for the city which was built by God, not a city there in Canaan 
He knew that that's not where it was going to be. He was looking forward to the heavenly dwelling of the saved. That's what he was looking forward to. Yes, even in the Old Testament. So how much did God really reveal to him? We don't have all the details, but he had to be revealing something. When when God came to him, he he must have told him that um, who he was, because if he was a pagan, he had to reveal himself as God and the Almighty One. He had to reveal what salvation was, was all about. But more than that, there was not only a land to which he was going to go physically that God would give him, but that there was going to be a city that God himself was going to build. That God would lay the foundation and be the architect and builder. He was looking because Abraham was looking forward to that city. No wonder he could be patient in the land of Canaan. He could be a tent dweller there. He could wander for all those years, and he did, and he did that because his sights were on the heavenly city. He did exactly what we're told in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2 to do. Set your mind where? On things above, not on earth, earthly things. What a contrast to Abraham's nephew Lot, right? Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. We know all about the wickedness that was there in Sodom. Lot wanted the world. Abraham was looking towards heaven. And if we're looking continually at the things of this world in this life, if we're focused on trials and troubles and and struggles or, or success and money and fame and pleasure, we become absorbed like Lot, and it becomes a destructive and even a damning trap for us. But if our focus is on heaven and on God's promises, then we can live in and through any circumstance in our life. Are there blessings along the way? Absolutely. But the supreme blessing is going to be eternity with God. Thirdly, we see the power of faith. Verses 11 and 12. And by faith came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Now back in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord not only promises Abraham a land to possess... But he promises a great nation coming from his descendants. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The promise was coming to Abraham. So he's waiting for a place, and he's waiting for a people. But there's a problem. He's old, and his wife is old. They've never had any children. Sarah was not able And this is where we see the amazing power of faith. You see, faith sees the invisible. Faith sees the impossible. That's the power of faith. It trusts in God to do what humanly cannot be done. And when there is that kind of faith present, God acts on behalf of that faith. Now, let's go to verse 11 for a minute. This is is interesting. Now, Sarah, of course, is Abraham's wife. and She's a good wife. In fact, Peter in 1 Peter 3, 6 speaks of her as being a good, faithful wife and says, Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. But it's interesting that there's nothing in Scripture that actually talks about her faith. So I thought we just read that. Hang on here. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not trying to take anything away from Sarah as Abraham's wife, or the fact that she was a good and faithful wife. And I'm sure she believed in God. 
But I don't believe this verse, verse 11 here in Hebrews, I don't believe this verse is actually speaking about Sarah's faith. And there are a number of reasons. One is that this whole section in Hebrews 11, 8 to 19, is all talking about Abraham's faith. It's all about Abraham. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed and went. Verse 9, by faith he made his home like a stranger in a foreign country. Verse 11, and by faith. Verse 17, by faith Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises, who? Who, would, who embraced the promises? It was Abraham. The second reason is the actual Greek language that's being used here. We'll take a look at that in just a second. And thirdly, if you look back at this incident in Genesis, Sarah really wasn't exhibiting faith at that time. As she first laughed at the idea when she heard, overheard the angels talking to Abraham about a son at their age. And then when she herself tried to make it happen by having Abraham sleep with her servant, now Abraham was involved in that, obviously. But verse 11 in, in, in the NIV says this, And by faith, whose faith? Again, I believe it's speaking of Abraham's faith. Even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children. Now it's interesting, the phrase in English, enabled to bear children, is in the Greek, and excuse my pronunciation here, lambano dunamis ice katabole sperma. Lambano dunamis ice means received power or was empowered or enabled for. Katabole sperma, as you can probably be thinking of in the Greek word, the injection or depositing of the virile semen in the womb. So there are actually two powerful miracles that are taking place in this one phrase due to Abraham's faith. Sarah's womb was open. She was barren. She was not able to have children. And Abraham's seed came back to life. Even as verse 12 says, he was as good as dead as far as the process of making children. It is, however, as the pulpit commentary says, Abraham himself who is put prominently before us as a great example of faith. Sarah is only introduced by his side as sharing it, sharing the faith, and cooperating in the result. Well, what about the second part of the verse there? By his faith, and I've, I've uh, put in his, by his faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because, our translation says, she considered him, talking about God, she considered him faithful who had made the promise. I put the pronoun in parentheses there, the pronoun for she, the pronoun for his, because the Greek doesn't have a pronoun in the sentence. The pronouns are assumed. But we need to ask our questions, who made the promise? God did. Who believed God's promises? Abraham did. Who acted on God's promise? Abraham did. Who then considered God faithful who had made the promise? Abraham did. So since pronouns are assumed, I feel that this verse will be better translated for a better understanding of what's being said here. And by, faith, and by his faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled for the deposit of the seed because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. This is all about Abraham's faith. 
Now, you may have seen, uh, Pastor, you, you did a lot of grammatical gymnastics here to try, try to come up with that. I don't think so. Because this is corroborated by Paul in Romans chapter 4, verses 18 to 21. Listen. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening his faith, because his promise was so impossible, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Who was fully persuaded here? It was Abraham. And that's exactly what Hebrew is saying. He, Abraham, considered him faithful who had made the promise. This is all about Abraham. And this is why Paul says in the very next verse, in verse 22, it was credited to him as righteousness. Because he was the one who believed in the impossible and trusted God. You know what's interesting? The power that God gave him to produce that child the power that God expressed in healing the womb of Sarah didn't just produce Isaac, but it produced another child before him, Ishmael, through Hagar. And then when Sarah died, according to Genesis chapter 25, Abraham took another wife, Keturah, and by now he's over 100 years old. He only lived to 175. He has six more sons. God gave an enduring power to that old, old dead body of his, which was as good as dead. So what does that say about the power of faith? It's the power of faith that accomplishes the impossible. It's a power, it's, and it's not our power. I think some people feel that it's our power. It's God's power. God makes promises that cannot be fulfilled on a human level and fulfills them to those who believe in him. One commentator put it this way, faith is the ignition switch to spiritual power that makes us useful and allows God through us to do the 30, 60, and 100-fold kind of harvest that Jesus talks about. Fourthly, we see the hope, the hope of faith. Starting in verses, uh, verse 13 going through 16. All these people, the people that the writer of Hebrews was mentioning, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers in or on earth. Then he goes on to say, People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to go back. Or to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country. What? A heavenly country. That's what they had their eyes set on. Because of their relationship with God, because of the absolute trust in God and in His promises, because of the trustworthiness of God's Word, it gave them that endurance and their perseverance for the future. And it gave them that positive hope in their faith to endure anything. It's the same thing that Paul was talking about when he said, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. 
No matter what I have to go through or what I have to do, I can do all things through Christ. Back in chapter 1 of Philippians, Paul says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. That's what we really wanted to do, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. It's because of that hope of glory that Jesus has promised that we have joy in our faith. The same hope of faith is seen in Psalm 27, verse 4, where we read, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That's Old Testament hope. That's the hope of believers. And verse 16 ends there in Hebrews with one of the most stunning statements in the book, of, or at least in this chapter, but perhaps the whole book of Hebrews. It says, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now we usually talk about people being ashamed of speaking about Christ or admitting that Christ is our Savior, or, or admitting that we actually believe in the true God. Have you ever paused and thought, is God ashamed of being called my God? Hmm. Something to, to ponder. There's a final note, and perhaps the greatest credential of Abraham's faith, and we call it the proof. The proof of faith. Final and ultimate test is it starts in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now, you know the story from back in Genesis 22, but let me refresh your memory a little bit. It says sometimes, sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. He didn't stop and say, now let me pray about that. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, and when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked and saw the place in the distance, and he said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Did you catch that? We will worship, and then we will come back to you. He knew that. He had confidence in in, in that fact. That's how confident he was in the promise of God. He didn't know how, but he knew God would come through somehow. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the wood and the knife. As the two of them went On together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, "Uh, Father, yes, my son, Abraham answered. God himself will, excuse me, um, 
the, the fire and the wood are here. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. What an amazing statement of faith. Imagine yourself in that situation. He trusted God despite the reality right in front of him. And the two of them went on together, and when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And when they reached the place God had told him about, um, he, he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Again, a picture of Christ being laid on the wood of the cross. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And you think, seriously? Really going to do that? He was actually going to. Yes, and our, 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 our verse in Hebrews tells us why. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. Abraham reasoned. Okay, he was thinking. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. He didn't know, excuse me, he knew that because he had been as good as dead himself and God had already worked that miracle through his power by giving life to his old dead body in order to be able to have children. And God had told him that through Isaac, his descendants would be as many as the sands of the sea. How is that going to happen if Isaac is dead? So he was able to pass that ultimate test because his trust was so great. And he knew if God had to, he would actually raise Isaac from the dead. Which, as we know, is another type. Another analogy or picture of Christ. Except Jesus actually died and rose from the dead. Isaac didn't. Remember when Isaac said to his father, the fire and wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham's answer was, God himself will provide the lamb, my son. The immediate fulfillment of that statement took place in the finding of the ram that was caught in the the bushes. The ultimate fulfillment took place 3,000 years later. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the final lamb, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the faith of Abraham. It wasn't just faith to take the initial step in believing God. It was a faith that has such conviction that it produced action. An amazing example for us. And in our own pilgrimage of faith, because we are all on a pilgrimage of, a, of faith, do we have that patience and that hope and that endurance to pass any test that God puts there before us, to do whatever God asks of us, even if it would cost the life of our children or perhaps ourselves. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song. It starts out by saying, You call me upon the waters, the great unknown. That's what Abraham, <laughs> great and I have no clue. You call me out upon the waters, the great unknown, where feet may fail. And there I find you in the mystery. In oceans deep, my faith will stand. And I will call upon your name and keep my eyes above the waves. When oceans rise, my soul will rest 
in your embrace, for I am yours and you are mine. I trust that is our faith this morning as we're walking in that pilgrimage. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning we thank you. We thank you for these men of old, these people from the Old Testament that, that you have worked through. and where You gave us all that scripture for us to learn our lesson from them as we put into action the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And Father, if, if there, there is someone that's struggling, whether it's within the, the church walls right now or whether it's somebody that is online and, and watching, if there's somebody struggling with their faith and trying to figure where in the world is God, Father, I pray that you would give them that, that assurance that they would stand strong on the faith in you, knowing that you are God Almighty. You are the great I Am. And whatever promises you give to us, whatever you say in your word, it will not change. You will answer those, those promises. You will keep be true to your word. And Father, I pray that in the midst of the storms of, of our lives that go around about us, that we will stand firm. And that you, we know that you, you will bring us through. And we've got that heavenly, uh, that, that heavenly inheritance waiting for us. And we thank you and we praise you. Do a, do a new work in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.